since its founding more than 20 years ago, Campbell University Divinity School has been guided by a unique six-word mission statement, Christ-centered, Bible-based, ministry-focused. That mission statement captures our distinct integration of academic rigor, spiritual formation, and practical application. It lays the foundation for an unusual strong sense of community among a very diverse student body, drawn from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, age groups, along with the faculty and staff. It expresses the deep, shared commitment to our faith and willingness to engage with different points of view that characterize everything we do. We do not seek simply to inform students, rather we invite them to journey into transformation, challenging them and equipping them to develop their own understanding of what it means to be Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to Visitation Day, or to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty to lead a retreat or Bible study or to wrestle with difficult issues. You can reach us online at divinity.campbell.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to tell you about CBF ChurchWorks. CBF ChurchWorks Conference creates a space each February for congregational ministers of education and spiritual formation to be equipped for the journey through creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. ChurchWorks 2019 focuses on sharing the love of Christ by battling injustice, exclusion, and marginalization in our communities. Hear from unique voices of those who are bearing witness to Jesus Christ in their communities and creating a true sense of belonging to God and to one another. Join our colleagues February 25th to 27th at Third Baptist Church in St. Louis, Missouri. Register now at cbf.net backslash churchwork. And now, on to our conversation. Well, our guest for this week's podcast is a flag football legend and the chair of the Department of Christian Studies and professor of Christian Theology and Philosophy at Campbell University. Adam English began his tenure at Campbell in 2003 and was named the chair in 2015. He's the author of The Possibility of Christian Philosophy, Theology Remixed, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, and Christmas Theological Anticipation. Adam, thank you for joining the conversation. It's great to be with you, Andy. Well, you know, uh, you and I go back a, a really long ways, which I always like to recall that you have to be one of the most um, profound persons of, of mercy and grace to take a um, college student like myself and be willing to continue to engage in conversation all these years later. Oh, it's been great. You know, we've got, uh, we do go back a long ways to some really epic flag football games. Um, yeah, where Andy was playing quarterback and running like mad from uh, massive divinity school students who were wanting to crush him. And uh, so, yeah, we've, we've got some long, long history, but I really enjoyed watching your ministry and uh, just your family uh, go through the journey of life. And so, it's, yeah, it's been a good journey. Well, um, let's dig a little bit into your story for those that um, aren't familiar with your, your brilliant work. Um, tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. I, you know, I came to 
ministry as a, you know, as a 16 year old, I, I answered a, a call to ministry as a high schooler. And, you know, for all I knew that that meant um, serving as a missionary or a church pastor. Um, in fact, when I went to college, I, I served at a little tiny little church, uh, Lake Fort Phantom Baptist Church um, in the middle of nowhere as a youth and children's pastor. And, you know, could really see myself in that role. And then about halfway through seminary, uh, you know, I really began to, to think that maybe my calling could work itself out in the classroom. And, you know, I, I began pursuing the, the doctoral degree and pr pursuing an academic career, but never really saw it as a switch from ministry to some other kind of vocation. I really just see it. And I still see it as an outpouring and an, and an outcome of that answer to ministry. And so I, I definitely hope uh, that, you know, every day I get up, I'm, I'm, I'm answering a call to ministry and then I'm, I'm willing to hear that call. And so I, I really do see what I do in the classroom, even though it's, it's not in a, a local church, but I really do see it as part of a ministry and, I, it's, and it's been a blessing all, all along the way. So yeah, it's been a good journey um, from, you know, that, that sense as a, as a 16 year old, no one else in my family was in ministry. And so, I mean, I really had no idea uh, what ministers did or, or what it would entail. And, um, you know, I didn't even know, like when you, when you answer that call to ministry, I mean, do you even go to college? Do I just, you know, just go straight into some kind of church work? And uh, so, you know, it's been really uh, a good journey and it, and it puts me in a good place to to talk with students who are coming along and, and maybe also feeling a call to ministry, but not really sure what that might mean or or what they might serve as or or in what capacity. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, here at Campbell, I teach theology and philosophy. Um, and mainly I work through uh, the history of theology and uh, and then also teach some philosophy and some ethics as well. So kind of, you know, a bunch of different ways of being engaged. Well, I mean, it's interesting um, track. I mean, you certainly, um, you know, went to undergrad at Hart and Simmons and got an um, MA from Southwestern back in the day. Sorry, I had to point out the time yeah, frame right. of all that. And then, uh, you know, PhD from Baylor. And, I've, and then, of course, um, you know, w walk us into um, there's this school in a place called Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. Uh, you know, what, what was that experience like trying to, you know, after your postdoctoral work, uh, try to figure out where you're going to, uh, to live into this calling? Yeah, you're right. I could fill out any piece of this story. Um, you know, I was raised in Texas, and uh, so I'd never even been to, to North Carolina. Um, but, um, you know, as you well know, the, uh, there are there are just a few, there are a handful of schools out there um, that are offering theology or teaching theology and that, and that would be open to someone from the Baptist tradition uh, teaching theology. And uh, so Campbell called, Glenn Jonas called me and um, he said, hey, we've got this position. Would you be interested? And uh, we definitely very much were. And, you know, that was over 15 years ago. And we have since made North Carolina our home. Campbell is, you know, it's a great school with CBF affiliations and uh, we've got a divinity school here. I, I work with the undergraduates in the Department of Christian Studies, but um, we've really made it a home. And I, you know, what I love about what we do here, just the ethos here, is that um, there is one foot in the academy, one foot in, in scholarship. That's definitely um, 
you know, front and center of what we do. We, we want to take our academic calling seriously and, and take uh, scholarly rigor seriously. But there's also another foot that's in ministry in the church, uh, realizing that, you know, what we're doing here should have an impact on our communities and, uh, you know, on people's lives. And so, you know, I, I feel like you could go wrong maybe just being a, a one trick pony either way. And, you know, I feel like we've got a, a really nice balance here of, of trying to stay connected with, you know, real life and real church ministry, and then also connected to uh, the real scholarship that, that needs to take place. Hmm. Well, not to um, promote my twice alma mater, but, you know, Campbell is somewhat of, of a jewel, I think, of, of the Southeast. Um, you know, growing up in a more conservative um church background. Um, and y'all, you get to experience this every single day, those freshman students who have never been taught to think critically and what that looks like. And, you know, one thing that Campbell, um, and, and you and, and so many others, um, you know, Dr. Lopez is another person that comes to mind because she typically has to face the people in their first old Testament class, you know, Mm -hmm. have this overwhelming compassion, um, and grace for those who are trying to maybe work out this deconstruction of their faith they didn't realize they were going to have to enter into to think critically, but also to be faithful to, to their, their journey with Christ. Yeah. I remember as a, you know, as a teenager, um, you know, our pastor was, um, you know, very, I guess, theologically conservative. I mean, I didn't have any categories for it at that time, but, you know, I remember him standing up in front of the church and saying, you know, I believe, every word of this Bible is literally true and, and literally inerrant. And, and I believe every single word of it, including, you know, the front part here that says uh, uh, genuine leather you know, on the cover. I mean, I believe every <laughs> single word of it. And, um, you know, and then getting to college and having to wrestle with what's actually inside the text and, and the nuances and, um, and, and trying to keep that faith, but also realizing, you know, this text has, history and it has to be translated and it has to be interpreted and it has to be understood in a cultural context and then applied to a current one. And, and it's, it's so much more complex. I mean, I love my pastor's name was Buddy uh, growing up. Maybe it gives you a sense of who he was, um, big ex-football player and, and just had a great heart. Uh, but, you know, in some ways it was, you know, he presented an overly simplistic picture of what, you know, what our faith really is or what the the bible really is and it does take a little i used to mention some deconstruction there it does take a little bit of deconstruction you come in and and you know my goodness you don't have to have um some kind of liberal professor uh working on you all you have to do is just open up the bible and start reading it for yourself uh and, and as you read the four gospels and you ask yourself a question hey why why are there four gospels why does one gospel you know, why does it put things in different order from the other gospel? Or why, you know, why does it seem like different things happen at different times? And, you know, as you begin to ask those sorts of questions, that leads you to a critical engagement. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's, it's, but it is, it is scary at times when it feels like it might be a challenge to what you've always believed and, and felt. And, and so I had to go through that. And I am completely sympathetic with students that have to make that journey but it's the journey of faith. Um, you know, it never, never was promised to be easy or simple or light. It is the narrow road, if you will. 
Well, let's just be honest with you being from that part of Texas. He had to say it as genuine leather. <laughs> yeah, it was genuine weather, leather. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and now I was coming up. I mean, there, uh, the controversies over scriptural inerrancy were, were raging. I was just a kid, so I, I really didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, but, you know, I do remember just kind of hearing some, uh, I guess, bombs being lobbed back and forth and, you know, kind of wondering about it. Um, and then again, like I say, all you have to do is just start reading the book for yourself. And then you start to realize, oh, wait, it's got to be more complex. And, and, and we have to we have to approach it carefully. And, and you know, I think that's why we need education. You know, it, it's it's important to learn something about the original language of this text it's important to learn something about the history and the makeup and it's important to learn how has this text been interpreted by the tradition uh, and how has it been interpreted well has it been misinterpreted i mean all of that has to play in uh you know i think back to uh, some of our earliest baptist predecessors who, who did not agree with what i just said there uh you know some of the earliest baptist traditions when the minister got up into the pulpit uh, after the scripture was read, uh, the minister would put the Bible away, close the Bible and put it away, you know, have no notes. And the feeling was you want the Holy Spirit to speak through you directly. Um, and, and so if you have any kind of notes, and even if you got the Bible in front of you, uh, you know, you might be thwarting the Holy Spirit and, and closing yourself off to a message. And, um, you know, I think that's, yeah, that's just dangerous. That's not... Uh, that's not healthy. Uh, we want to use every resource we can possibly make use of and, and equip ourselves fully for the ministry and the task and, um, you know, not, uh, not try to just close off any of those resources in front of us. So, yeah, um, I don't know where that was going. <laughs> well, you know, you think, you think around, um, you, and this is not to aid you a bit because, um, um, you, I don't think you've aged at all since the time I've known you. Um, but you've been in higher that. education for, uh, you know, over, over the last two decades or more. And, yeah, that's right. you know, how do you feel like higher education is, is shaping specifically, you know, around this idea of um, you know, religion and philosophy? And what do you, what do you think it's going to look like in the next five to 10 years? You know, that's a great question. I mean, I guess at one level, look, everybody's everybody's asking that and wanting to project into the future and see where, where are we going? Uh, man, it's just so hard because we're, you know, we're always too close to our own era to really, really assess it well. Um, but I would say that in general, um, students and I think probably just people in general uh, are, are talking more in terms, using terms more of like, justice and equality and, and equity rather than the terms of the faith like salvation and grace and um, forgiveness. And, you know, so you can kind of just pick up on some of those changes and you realize that, um, yeah, there there is a change that, you know, some of it's for the good, some of it maybe not, realizing that for a lot of people today, they're coming without a, a huge background in the Bible or in the Christian faith. And that shows up not just in that they haven't read the stories, but uh, they've not been, um, in, I guess, trained to use the language of the faith, even to discuss social problems, to discuss kind of personal struggles. 
um, they're using other language. They're using political language. They're using the language of psychology, um, but they're they're not using the the language of Zion, if you will. And you know, when you pick up on those little changes like that, it does hint to you that um, there's a different ethos. There's a different approach. And um, not to say that these people are any less spiritual, or that their questions are any less spiritual, but they're they're not framing them in biblical ways. And and so that's a challenge for us because we find, you know, we've got to, you can't just assume that people, college students, or even even just regular people uh, have and know the story of Abraham or Moses or um, you kind of know the language of, you know, forgiveness or grace or salvation or redemption. Um, those Those terms are becoming maybe more uh, unique to to Christianity or or more jargon language almost or more peculiar to uh, this faith as opposed to maybe being assumed to be broader uh, terms that, that everybody knows because in one sense everybody's been raised Christian or something. So I don't want to be overly dramatic or overly generalized there, but you, know, you do, I, I haven't picking up on some of those uh, changes just in the way that we approach uh, questions. Now you've written a, a great deal and I figured the best way to um, introduce two of your last books is maybe with an audio intro, if you would uh, indulge me for just a moment. Now you've, uh, you've recently written two books, uh, you know, around the theology of Christmas and, then, of course, uh, the saint who would be uh, St. Nicholas. Um, take, us, take us into that. You know, the fact that your last two uh, published works are around uh, Advent and, and Christmas. What's, what's the motivation behind that? I began working in historical theology. So my first writings were in sort of the history of, of theology and then, um, and then writing in systematic theology uh, or constructive theology. But I, I guess as as I journeyed through that, I, I began. I kind of came to a discovery that uh, theology is lived. It has to be lived, and so there are more. There's more than just ideas at work. And I felt like maybe in my own training, my own reading, my own thinking, the ideas, the beautiful ideas, had become so important and um, so central that maybe I was neglecting the actual practice of the Christian faith in, in the real lives. And so that kind of took me back to thinking about, okay, who, you know, who are the people that are living out the Christian faith and how is that enacted? So we can talk about the Trinity and the incarnation and redemption on the cross and those kind of big ideas. Um, but it's just as important to think about the people that live those things out and, and model them for us. And, so that really kind of got me into uh, the saints, if you will, the, the, the heroes of the past. And kind of in the course of that journey, I also had some opportunities to lead some study abroad trips to Italy. And in the course of that, I just found that uh, the, the bones of St. Nicholas are buried in Bari, Italy. Uh, and so I was able to go and spend some time there. And they have a archive library attached to the Basilica of St. Nicholas in Bari and began to work through those documents and just became fascinated with the life story of this man, Nicholas of Myra. 
uh, whom, you know, I had only known uh, just tangentially as the, you know, I don't know, the predecessor of Santa Claus and began to realize that there was a lot more to his story. And then in many ways, St. Nicholas was much more interesting than Santa Claus could ever be. And so I just realized, gosh, there's a story to be told there. And, and so that's kind of the, the, the way I got into uh, St. Nicholas and then ultimately into Christmas and Santa Claus and you know, all the rest, uh, which has been a, a total joy and a journey that I, I did not anticipate taking when I got into the business of um, theology. Well, I guess, first of all, how dare you, sir? You're, you're trying to ruin my, my childhood. Um, so, uh, of course, you know, take us, we take a little bit look into uh, this guy named Nicholas, um, you know, born um, what's now modern day uh, Turkey and fourth century bishop. Um, you know, we know him as, as an overwhelming uh, person of generosity and compassion and benevolence. Um, and his, but, but of all the saints, you know, um, you know, this, this seems like such an, an, an oddball to, to take in, mm-hmm. um, you know, until I started um, reading through um, your book and, and reading the context of, of this man. I mean, so, so kind of can paint the historical context. You know, you look at this guy, the early first century, you're talking about the world altering shifts of Galerius's 313 edict. Constantine's uh, 312 Battle of the Milvian Bridge, the uh, 313 Eat Milan, the theology shifting of the Council of Nicaea in 325. This is all in the wheelhouse of Nicholas's uh, day and age. So as a person of theology and philosophy, it, it, it makes complete sense that you would write a historical theology work on this man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by um, that early church and, and the, what happens there at the beginning Nicholas is alive and present at the the Council of Nicaea, which is a watershed event for Christianity, but certainly for theology. I mean, you can't do theology without encountering uh, the Nicene Creed and the the Council of Nicaea and all that goes down there. So you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a theological connection uh, with Nicholas, although Nicholas himself never wrote uh, any theological tracts. In fact, we don't have anything that he wrote uh, in his own hand. And and so for a long time, there was some suspicion that maybe this person didn't even exist. Uh, and uh, so it's only been within the last uh, 25 years or so that uh, the, the existence of Nicholas and the attestation of, of some of his actual deeds has been confirmed and demonstrated and you know, brought into to more light. And that's, again, another thing that's maybe exciting about St. Nicholas studies today is that there's actually been some, some discoveries and some innovations in the last 25 years. And so a reason to kind of return to the subject. It's even cooler is that you're now going to be cited because you've written a pretty extensive work on him. So, so as you look, you know, kind of around the historical context of what's happening, where did Nicholas stand on the, um, the homoousia debate? Yeah, good. So to take us to the year 325 and the Council of Nicaea, I said it's a watershed event because up until this point, Christianity, just as a faith, uh, there was no official statement of what Christianity even was. And of course, you can read the Gospels, you can read the letters of Paul, and and, um, there was 
you know, a, a an agreed upon just sort of consensus about what the gospel was, what it meant to believe in Jesus. Um, but again, no one had put that on paper or voted on it or, uh, you know, or just thought it through really. And so you got to really think back to that, that kind of place. Um, and that's what ultimately brings together this council of Nicaea over 300 bishops, which, you know, at that day and time, a bishop was not a person with a fancy car and outfit and a high salary, but just the name of a, a local pastor or the head pastor of a region. And so they come together um, at the residence, temporary residence of Constantine, the emperor, and they kind of hash some of these questions out. Who is Jesus for us? And what does it mean to profess faith? And it, it became really important and really evident to affirm that uh, Jesus was not just um, another prophet uh, like Elijah or like Isaiah, uh, and and also that you know Jesus was not some ghost or, or phantom. He wasn't just uh, an apparition of God, but this was God in the flesh. He became one of us, and so you know, it became really important to say to affirm that this is God from God, light from light, a true God from true God, uh, begotten, uh, you know, not made, and that he became incarnate in the Virgin Mary. He really became one of us. So when we see Jesus, we see who God is, you know, 100%. And then when we see Jesus, we also see kind of who we are supposed to be, the, the full essence of humanity, you know, both things in one, and it's a mystery, and it's, you know, and it's it's hard to get your mind around, but it's also at the heart of our faith um, that, you know, at the heart of our faith, we we don't have um, a prophet like Muhammad, uh, that Jesus is more than a mere rabbi, but we also don't just have uh, a ghost who has only appeared among us, uh, but didn't really suffer and die on the cross, only seemed to or something like that. So we want to hold both these things in tension. He, he really did appear among us. He really did suffer and die. And he really was the full presence of God among us. And, and you know, and that's a, at the end of the day, I think it's, it's a, um, it's an affirmation that God has fully identified with us. And if you ever wonder does God really know what I'm going through? Has God really ever been in my shoes? And the answer is yes. You know, God has experienced your temptation, your frustration, uh, your joys, your angers, all of that. Uh, he's lived it. And so, you know, this gives us confidence that, that God knows who we are, knows what we're going through. When we come to him in prayer, uh, we are coming to one who has been in our shoes. And I think that makes all the difference between an approachable God and one who is just ultimately unapproachable. Uh, and so to me, that's, you really are at the heart of the Christian faith. And St. Nicholas was there, and that's exciting. 
This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. What's this to the rumors that Nicholas struck Arius in the face? Yeah, so, you know, it'll definitely happened as i don't know sometime in early december the the memes the online memes will will pop start popping up uh featuring you know a stern looking saint nicholas and a meme that says something like i saw santa punching arius or you know the one one of my favorites is uh the one that says um nicholas says you know i, I came to hand out presents and punch heretics and I just ran out of presents. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah, it's just these great, great memes that you'll see online and you think, what, you know, what in the world? Um, so the story goes that Arius, who's kind of the arch heretic, uh, an enemy of the truth, he's there at the council and he's spouting off all this heresy regarding Jesus and that Nicholas can no longer contain himself. He, he steps up and strikes Arius in the jaw. And then for this rash act in the presence of dignitaries and the emperor, uh, the bishops de- uh, deprive Nicholas of his Episcopal robes and of his mitre hats, and they imprison him, and guards burn off his beard. Uh, but that night, Mother Mary and Jesus appear to Nicholas and restore his beard and you know, kind of commend him for his zeal. Uh, and um, the, unfortunately, the, the tale has no basis in history. Uh, that's the shame of it. It appears more than a thousand years after Nicholas's death. Um, and, and you know, there's a number of things that even on the surface of it wouldn't ring true. Um, we know that a letter of Arius was read at the council, but Arius himself was not at the council uh, speaking. So. He wasn't there to strike. And, you know, so, but yeah, it's, it's a great story. And, you know, the idea of Santa Claus, you know, getting, uh, this jolly old, you know, generous fat elf, uh, you know, turning around and punching somebody and, you know, just think, oh man, wouldn't that be cool? And it's like, no, no, it's not. But I would love it to be true. <laughs> just, or maybe not. I don't know. I don't know that we want uh, to, uh, I don't know that we want to champion St. Nicholas punching people anybody maybe <laughs> well is it bad the only thing i'm holding on to that story is you know if i maybe if i pray hard enough mother mary and jesus will show up and restore my receding hairline uh, yeah. you know, they can restore beards <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's the takeaway right there absolutely yeah. well yeah, there's a bit of an unsavory history of what followed nicaea to arius and his followers is certainly a, a black mark yeah. on the church's history but you know there's other um uh, tales or uh, stories around nicholas that are kind of in the same vein. So um, Artemis is this Greek goddess of the hunt and the moon and chastity, but apparently Nicholas had major issues with the Greco-female deity. Um, so, he, you know, in your book, you write about that he found 
uh, the temple of Artemis to be more admirable and, and beautiful than any other temple and surpassing in magnitude. And so he decides to, that he wants to demolish it, including, uh, you know, legends of the sounds of demons screeching um, uh, that could be heard as they were or tearing down this facility. So what do you make of the story? What's its intent and, and what do we do with it? When you, when you go over to Europe and you see some of these old uh, frescoes and mosaics in the, uh, in the old churches, you'll still see them today that feature St. Nicholas and he's got an ax and he's chopping down sacred trees or he's pushing over uh, temples. You know, he's got this angry scowl on his face and it is really jarring when you, we think of, you know, St. Nicholas today as, as the gift giver and the lover of children and all this kind of stuff. And then to see him wielding an ax, um, you know, what in the world? Uh, so, yeah, this is part of the the situation at the, at the time. And, and you can say it's, it is a, a, uh, a mark against our faith. Uh, Christians had been through some extreme persecution uh, and Nicholas lived through that as well. Churches being torn down, scriptures being rounded up and burnt, uh, and and even people being put to death. Uh, when the tables turn, you know, I would love to be able to say that Christians did not take out any kind of revenge or what have you, uh, but in fact, you know, there, the tables did turn, and um, we do have some instances not only in in Myra where Nicholas was, but in Jerusalem and in Alexandria and some other major places where. Uh, temples of the gods, the traditional gods, were torn down. Um, some were burnt, and, and you know, there were some riots, and, and yes, yeah, some of them got violent as well. And so, you know, that is just part of the part of the story. Uh, and if you go to Rome today, in fact, uh, you can visit churches in the area that are made out of um, columns and, and pieces from former temples and former buildings. And so a lot of the architecture uh, in Rome fr from the, I guess, medieval churches was taken from pre-existent material, some of these old temples and that kind of thing. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know what we do with that. I mean, it's uh, at one level that just is the way that it was for everybody back then. Um, everybody did that to each other. And so once you defeat your rival, you just, you know, you, you didn't show a lot of mercy or toler tolerance. Toleration was not a virtue back then as it is for us. So today we want to model pluralism and getting along with our neighbors and um, interfaith dialogue and, and all these things, which I think are absolutely good. And I don't see that, you know, that, that we did a good thing back then. But, you know, back then that was just not that was not the case. Those were not virtues that were. Uh, championed in any particular way. So yeah, Nicholas is right there in the mix, um, tearing down temples and, and uh, you know, so there was definitely a contest uh, for for the faith. And, you know, so we want to just keep it in that historical context and just remember what was going on at that time. And, you know, obviously it's one of those virtues that we would not want to transplant into our own day and age. Um, that's That's not a good way to handle religious disagreements uh, today, for sure. So maybe the image of, of Nicholas as Krampus or bad Santa might be more yeah. uh, accurate, historically speaking, than jolly old St. Nick. So, you know, you can sense that there's a similar zeal today with religious folks. Um, 
as they face supposed idols and temples and false gods within our culture. So, you know, what would you say to the ministers listening to this as their, um, you know, parishioners are struggling with how do we confront um, the things of this world that we don't see eye to eye with? Is there a more compassionate and productive way that we can learn from this poor example of Nicholas? Well, I'll give you an example um, from from that time itself, from the life of um, St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived just 100 years after Nicholas, but you know, roughly in that same time period, um, he was confronted with some extreme controversy in his own church, uh, the Donatists, which some of your listeners may remember from an old church history class or something. But uh, in his time, the, the Donatists were sort of a faction of, of Christians who had, who had gotten very violent. Uh, they, they carried around clubs uh, and would chase people. They graffitied churches. Uh, they tried to waylay in Augustine. They tried, they were going to, they were going to ambush him and kill him on the road. Augustine only escaped by uh, taking a wrong road. He got misdirected and, and missed his <laughs> his chance to be ambushed. Um, and uh, so some of these people were um, being arrested, and um, and Augustine was uh, was written to by um, a Spanish priest named Constantius, who said uh, asked him, "Would it be okay if we use deceptive tactics? If we use lies or spies?" to find out the names of these Donatists who are causing so much trouble. And Augustine's answer was, um, was clear and it was, uh, you know, it was to the point and it was very emphatic. He said, absolutely not. Um, you know, you would be better served by convincing them with truthful arguments and it's your job to get down to writing those. And so he, he absolutely refused violence. He, did, he, he refused um, the death penalty for Donatist, and, and he, he argued to try to get them liberated. And, um, you know, he, he just felt that the way to solve these religious differences was not through violence, you know, not through intimidation. And, and so even then, there were some models, not, unfortunately, not Nicholas, but there were some models of, of um, how to handle uh, conflict. And like you say, today, you know, we, we've got some extremists in uh, amongst the Christians, amongst the Muslims, amongst people of different faiths, who would uh, rather, you know, uh, solve differences by by violence, and uh, you know, it's just that's not the way of Jesus. And I think Christians down through the ages have have understood that, and they've not always modeled it well. But yeah, we've got to find ways to resolve some of those differences by talking to each other, and, and not by resorting to you know invectives and name calling and um, stone throwing and all that kind of stuff. I'm on board with everything you just said. There's just one thing that I would have to throw a stone at. Um, Glenn Jonas is two offices over. <laughs> he knows that you just said Augustine instead of Augustine. That is true. That is true. <laughs> there's a, there's a strong debate here in the department about how to pronounce uh, yeah, th- a certain Bishop from Hippo who lived in the fourth uh, and fifth centuries. And um, yeah, it, I can just tell you that uh, Dr. Jonas is wrong, but <laughs> I don't know. You know, you know this, it, look, he's no longer alive today. You know, Augustine or Augustine. So you know, whatever. He he, uh, he probably wouldn't care. 
See, at this point. <laughs> I first thought you were trying to say that Jonas is dead. Jonas, no, no. <laughs> Jonas is still very much alive. He cares. I can't imagine that uh, it really makes any difference to Augustine, though, yeah. at this point. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's there's these legends associated with this saint uh, There is that are more, I would say, more vast than any other saint from uh, the miraculous conception of baby Nick to the gifts of gold to these three maidens from his maritime mythos to his brewing capabilities. Um, it's no wonder that this man's legacy transfused into the images we see in old St. Nick. So after you finished your research and penned the final revisions from the editor, um, what do you now um, want us to take away as, as the image of, of Nicholas? The, the thing that was most surprising to me when I studied Nicholas uh, was that, yes, um, he, he's a man of generosity, and they, we already knew that about him. And, and there's definitely reasons why he's the, the forerunner of Santa Claus. Uh, he, he does a number of things that are extremely generous, and uh, you know that's what we'd expect there. But what really surprised me was his strong sense of justice. Um, so not only the generosity, but you know, a number of those stories have him uh, sticking up for. Uh, the innocent and, and intervening in the innocence. And so, you know, we just talked about the, the Artemis piece there. And, and so you got to see some of the, maybe the forcefulness of Nicholas as he led the charge to tear down the temples of, of Artemis. But he, he would some, he oftentimes turn that forcefulness towards the cause of justice. And so uh, one story that's very famous, although we don't tell it much anymore, uh, but but certainly one of the most famous stories about Nicholas was how he intervened uh, and, and prevented the near beheading of three innocent men and confronted the judge who had made the judgment and went to his house and called him out for his misuse of justice. He'd been bribed into um, condemning these three men to death. And so Nicholas not only stops the execution, he goes to the judge who had rendered that verdict and, you know, and calls him out on it. Uh, you know, and that's, I mean, that's the kind of St. Nicholas that, you know, we don't often think about, or it maybe just it's a surprising turn of events there as someone who, you know, really advocated for his people. We see him on other occasions uh, advocating on behalf of the city. There's, there's a terrible famine in the city that uh, they've run out of, uh, of grain and, and wheat. And, and so it's, um, they're nearing starvation and, and Nicholas is able to convince a passing ship uh, of, of grain from Alexandria to Constantinople to stop and unload some of that grain to save the city. Uh, and so there is an element of generosity in that, to be sure, but also just an element of assertiveness, of forthrightness, of, uh, you know, concern for the people. And, you know, so again, I, I, I almost wonder today, uh, I've often just toyed with, in my mind today, you know, who would St. Nicholas be? You know, would he be... Um, the bearded, jolly, you know, elf in the mall, uh, handing out presents, or maybe he would he be, uh, you know, a man in a suit, uh, headed for Washington, you know, tr trying to advocate on behalf of his community. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, would he be working with Habitat for Humanity, and uh, you know, how would that generosity, you know, really? present itself today or demonstrate itself today. And, and it might be different than what we would expect, I guess. So besides his annual naughty and nice list, how might we celebrate the life of Nicholas? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm finding a lot of churches today are becoming more and more interested in the life of Nicholas. And, you know, so what, where this shows up is that a number of churches will have uh, Santa Claus impersonators come in and, and visit with the children. And more and more, these people are getting requests for St. Nicholas to come in and visit with the children, uh, which I think is great. You know, and so a lot of these guys who in their retirement are, uh, you know, playing the role of Santa Claus, uh, more and more of them are, um, you know, developing the role of St. Nicholas uh, because of these church requests. And so, you know, I think there's one way in which churches, you know, if you're looking for something to do at the Christmas season um, with your, with the kids of the church and, and connect it with the story of the Christian faith and, and with the gospel, uh, you know, have a visit from St. Nicholas and um, have him tell some of his stories to the kids and, and visit with them. Uh, you know, I think that would be uh, just remarkable and, and, and fantastic. Um, you know, you do find that uh, there, there are lots of, I mean, we've got to be really careful in the way that we, we do this, though, as well. Uh, anytime you bring St. Nicholas in, you, you might have to address the question of Santa Claus with your church, with the kids, with the families. Um, you know, many, some churches, I don't say many, but some still have uh, reservations about Santa Claus or maybe some, some open hostility towards Santa Claus. I mean, I, I definitely remember growing up and um, hearing in church you know, that, that Santa was kind of in league with the devil. In fact, if you rearrange the letters of his name, it becomes Satan, right? And, you know, that, that he's, he's leading us away from the true meaning of Christmas. He's uh, leading us into consumerism and um, greed. And, and so I think there's a lot of churches that still have a lot of hesitations about Santa Claus. And so, you know, I would just say, hey, if, you, if you're trying to introduce your church to St. Nicholas, yeah, you know, just be aware that there are some other um, issues you might have to address, and, and it's not bad to address them at all. I think, you know, I think, I think it's just appropriate. And my goodness, you know, we we do need to critique and be aware of the rampant consumerism that's that has taken place of what is otherwise what should be a holy day and a, and a really meaningful moment in in the church year. I certainly think if any church is going to have a Nicholas, you know, historical figure come in, they should definitely bring the one in with the burnt beard because kids, <laughs> kids will always remember that. <laughs> Why does he smell like smoke, daddy? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and there's other, you know, just things that we need to, I would just say, be thoughtful as you, as you try to introduce these Advent traditions or try to reintroduce um, St. Nicholas. Um, you know, I'm thinking over in um, the Netherlands right now, you know, they're having uh, a pretty extreme controversy in the Dutch Netherlands because of um, St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, they call him. But, you know, he's dressed as a as a bishop. Um, he's got he's kind of in Christian garb. You know, he's clearly a Christian pastor. Uh, and he arrives by boat in early November from Spain and rides a horse through the streets and hands out oranges and, and candies and things like that. Um, but he also travels with Zwarte um, Piet, Black Piet, uh, which has become very controversial in the Netherlands. And so you should definitely go look it up. But Zwarte um, Piet, this Black Piet, is usually dressed in kind of garish courtly attire or some kind of Harlequin costume with like a large feathered hat. And 
But then really controversially, he, he always has a blackened face. Um, and so even though he's extremely popular, uh, there's, there's a pretty tremendous amount of pressure to do away with the kind of the black face on Zorta Pete. Um, and so you can, you can just imagine that. So, you know, that's just uh, a number of, of, of cities have kind of outlawed the black peats and, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy over it. So, you know, I think anytime we start to bring in traditions into the church uh, like that from the outside, you just got to be aware that they come with, they may come with baggage. They may come with their own um, social uh, connections. And uh, so again, like I say, with Santa Claus, you know, there may be some people in your church that would be really offended if you brought Santa Claus into the church because for them it, it connects with consumerism. It connects with um, kind of secularism, an attempt to, you know, um, replace, you know, Jesus as the center of Christmas. And so, you know, you just want to be aware of um, some of that. Um, in fact, if, if your readers are interested uh, there's a book that came out just last year called Christmas in the Crosshairs uh, by a, a guy named Bowler. And, um, and it's all about sort of the, you know, the, the controversy that Christmas has always, not just recently, but really always uh, engendered that uh, you know, Christmas, is, for whatever reason, has always kind of been a controversial holiday and some people wanting to do away with it and some people wanting to, um, you know, do more of it. And so, uh, you know, there's kind of a fascinating history there with, with Christmas. I'm getting off on a tangent here, but um, I guess it is what it is. Well, it's kind of interesting because you started introducing that and you're talking about, you know, this uh, Nicholas figure coming dressed as a bishop and all the controversy happening right now, you know, with the church. I don't think a, uh, a bishop clad uh, image is necessarily what people want. Um, well, yeah, that too. I mean, so if you have a, um, especially in a Baptist church or, or in many Baptist churches, if you have someone come in dressed as a European St. Nicholas, uh, which would mean that, yeah, he would be dressed as, as a bishop with, um, you know, with maybe some, uh, a red, uh, robe, but, uh, you know, maybe with the gold finery and, and perhaps, a, a cassock and a, a miter hat and, uh, you know, a, a shepherd's crook and, and all of this that, you know, are very liturgical. And so you might have people say, well, wait a minute, you know, this looks really Roman Catholic to me. And, you know, I thought this was a Baptist church or whatever. So, yeah, there there may be other issues there. Okay, well, how do you deal even with just the liturgical garments of this person, um, which are going to be really foreign <laughs> to a lot of people, and that could create another conversation. <laughs> so you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's where I'm just uh, you know just caution uh, churches as they go forward, and you know, you, you want to do something that helps enrich the season, um, but maybe you don't want to do something that uh, you know, maybe cause you more headache than it's worth. <laughs> well, you've, you've also written Christmas uh, uh, theological anticipation for churches that want to transition into this more uh, contemplative celebration of Advent. How might they begin to shape a, a fuller theology of the season? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, one practice that would be much more approachable, even the one I was recommending with uh, having St. Nicholas come for a visit. You know, for some people that may just be maybe too much even. Uh, but I, I'm finding a lot of churches are are using the Advent wreath, uh, not only in their home, but but in the church. You can do it in your home or in the church or both. Uh, in, 
but the the advent wreath it's just a great way to to enter us to, to start the conversation about christmas about advent about the theology surrounding it uh you know there are uh three taper candles that are purple one candle that's pink and then the center is a white pillar candle and then they're you know uh, wrapped in a in a green wreath and each of those candles has symbolism and the wreath itself has symbolism and um uh, and so it it really would help to focus those services, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, it helps to focus them on the Advent event, on the, on the coming of Jesus, on the incarnation. And so each one is a talking point, and it's a way for the church to participate. You know, as you have families come and light a, a new candle each week, um, it just, you know, something as simple as that uh, will spark a conversation and spark uh, maybe some theology. I, you know, I just remember uh, some of the charismatic churches that we attended as kids. Um, you know, my my early experiences with the faith were, were in the charismatic church as my, as my parents went there when we were kids. And, you know, some of them, um, they refused to even recognize Christmas in any particular way. So even if, you know, December 25th fell on a Sunday, uh, you know, they would have church like normal, and there would be no real mention of Christmas, no decorations, certainly in the church or, or in any way uh, recognition, because it was felt that any sort of recognition of Christmas was in some sense pagan um, or maybe too Roman Catholic or, you know, they may have a bunch of reasons not biblical. And so, um, you know, that um, all that's to say you know, is, is, I think there is an important place to recover uh, the season of Advent and the theology of Christmas, um, and and I, just some ways that you can start to do it. I think again, like the, I say, the, the Advent wreath. If your church doesn't do that, you know, it's a it's a good one to introduce, and it, and it's very non-confrontational. <laughs> you know, you you can get by with it without uh, offending anyone, and and it, you know, again, I think the benefit of it will be. Uh, enormous. Well, I would recommend that uh, people go out and purchase theology, uh, Christmas, a theology of anticipation, and of course, the saint who would be Santa Claus. Um, Adam, thank you for um, reintroducing us to um, this important figure in the church's history, and of course, the theological implications that come from his life and legacy. Um, important, more importantly, thank you for investing your calling to shape a vibrant theology among those that are seeking Christ and those who are not but want to think critically um, around faith. Yeah, my pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. 
On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 